0: Well, I want to welcome everyone to our worship service, both here in our celebration service, our summit service. Just got to spend a moment or two with them a few minutes ago. And all of those that are watching from home, if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Uh, I know that you all enjoyed our Vacation Bible School video a few minutes ago. What an incredible week it has been. Uh, I have some numbers uh, that I want to share with you that Melanie... Our children's minister sent me this morning, almost 300 students enrolled this year in Vacation Bible School, 287, uh, over 200 volunteers, and that is just phenomenal, just phenomenal. Uh, We talk about uh, what we're trying to do as a church is to make disciples of Christ, to help people love God, love people, serve the body and serve the world. And to have such a significant part of our church come out and volunteer this last week, uh, just a fantastic week. Fourteen Decisions for Christ, still some more follow-ups that uh, Melanie and her team are are working on, people interested in baptism. Uh, The students, uh, the children gave money uh, for Operation Christmas Child boxes. They gave over $2,800 dollars. Listen, it was well run. Everything was covered. It was like a finely oiled machine. And it was a great week of joy. And uh, Mel and her team, great job. And those children, precious excitement they had, love for the Lord. And it's been good to be a part, First Baptist Church, especially uh, these last few days. Hey, I want to focus today. We'll be in Revelation 20, as I said. I, I want us to I want us to look and see something of the title of this message series, uh, Ten Weeks from the Resurrection to the Return of Christ. That title for this series really implies that this is a series of celebration. The resurrection, of course, is Christ's victory over the grave, and the return of Christ is Christ's Final victory over sin and evil. So this whole thing is a celebration. But what is the nature of the celebration? What is the nature of the victory that is won here? Will everyone share in this victory? Are we headed towards some sort of universal celebration? Well, contrary to what many people may believe, the answer is no. The Bible, the book of Revelation especially, makes it crystal clear that the truth is we're not headed uh, to some sort of eventual universal utopia where everybody is swept into some grand family and we all live happily ever after. That will not be the result. That will not be the experience of every single person. This is a victory for Christ and it will be a celebration for all those who follow Christ. But this will not be a celebration for everybody. I don't think that's really the Christian faith that so many people in America understand. And and I can prove this to you. How many times have you been to a funeral where people were not talking about the deceased person being in heaven? I I just got to believe you've never been to one of those funerals. Because we just have in this country this idea that everybody in the end will be wrapped up in the love of God, saved, forgiven of their sins, and experience this bountiful blessing in some new utopia. That's what we think. That's what we think. I can show it to you another way. What are the most well-known and well-loved Bible verses in our country? I'm not talking about uh, from the perspective of faithful church people, but just just people on the street. What are the verses they know and what are the verses that they love? I'll give you some. John 3, 16, be at the top of the list. Beautiful verse, beautiful truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And of course, great news, good verse. But the way our world, I'm afraid, understands it is that as long as you do not actively blaspheme the name of Christ, then in the end, you'll live with him in heaven for all eternity. But that's not what the verse says, right? Another popular verse in our culture, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And God is love. Again, beautiful verse, great truth. But the way people understand that so often is that they believe ultimately all you need to know about God is that he loves us. That's all you need to know about the Lord. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for, for the good, for those that love God. How does our world understand that verse? That in the end, God is committed to just making sure everything works out for everyone. Philippians 4, 13, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And though it's a wrong understanding of the verse, people think that that means that the, the greatest desire of God is just to make our lives a little easier here, to help us to accomplish anything that we might dream to accomplish. And if our world does point out a verse about sin, what verse do they point to? Matthew 7:1, do not judge and they misunderstand that verse to believe that it means that no one should ever say that what anybody else is doing is the wrong thing. And 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 so we have this understanding. <clears throat> I think as a as a nation, as a people and as a culture that that just in the end everybody's going to be saved. And in the end everybody's going to be blessed by God. And in the end everybody's going to be enveloped by the love of God. But if you've been with us as our As our journey has gone through the book of Revelation, you have seen that that is not the case. And today we will put a punctuation point, an exclamation point on that fact. This will not be the happiest message I've ever preached. Uh, And I don't really apologize. Sometimes the role of a pastor is to stand and preach the truth of God's Word in order to encourage you Uh, and to point you toward joy and greater joy. But all the time, the pastor's job is to stand and preach the truth, even when it doesn't encourage. And the truth of Revelation chapter 20 is a difficult truth. I want to begin reading in a moment in verse 11. I'll tell you that this is a future passage. This is something that is yet to happen. But will certainly happen. Uh, when we come to chapter 20, verse 11, the world has gone through a time of great trouble, so great that it defies description. Jesus Christ has returned, and he has uh, brought a quick and a decisive victory over evil. Then Jesus Christ rules on the earth for a thousand years. The devil and his evil forces are thrown into the lake of fire once and for all, never to be heard from again. And then the time of judgment. We call this, the Bible calls this, the great white throne judgment. Let's begin to read. That I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. So, this is a judgment for all those people who don't know Christ. This is a judgment for all of those people who have not followed Christ, believed in Christ, loved Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says that heaven and earth flee away, telling us that for those people, there is nowhere to hide. In this judgment. Verse 12. I also saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Verse 13. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in each of them. And each one was judged according to their works. And so the judgment begins. There are books that are open. What are the books that are open? Well, he tells us, for one, there's the book of life. The book of life, that is, that is the book that contains the names of every person who is a child of God. Every person who has put his faith and trust in Christ, repented of his sins, every person, his name is written in the book of life. None of the people judged in this judgment will be people whose names are written in the book of life. And it's, it's there as if to double check to confirm that nobody being judged at the great white throne judgment has his name in the book of life. And then it says that there are books that contain the historical record of everything that these people have done. So this is a record of every sin they've ever committed, every failure, every time they've had a wrong attitude, said a wrong word, every time that they've not been honest, every time they've rebelled against God, every time they've broken a commandment, every time they have failed to obey a commandment. All those are written in these these books. And then I think there's one more book. Do you know what the other book is? Do you know? Can you think of it? I'll give you a hint. John chapter 12, verse 48. Jesus says, the word I have spoken will judge him on that last day. The Bible will be there. This book will be there. And the Bible says that those lost people will be judged Based upon the standard in this book. Have you ever wondered if it's important that you are a part of a church that faithfully preaches the Bible? Listen, if I were looking for a church, I'd want a church with a great children's ministry, I'd want a church with a great youth ministry, I would want a church with great worship, I'd want a church where people love each other and care for each other. But the one uh, uh, the one truth, the one feature that, that you just can't not have is the clear preaching of God's Word, both from the pulpit and in every class that meets at the church. And so it says here that, that the Word of God, the Bible, will be one of those, one of those books. And so there will be this, this judgment This judgment won't be like a human court. Uh, There will be a judge, but there will be no jury. There will be a a prosecution, but there will be no defense. There will be a sentence, but no appeal. No one will be able to defend himself by accusing God of unrighteousness. This will be an absolute judgment. Now, you might ask, how many violations are necessary to send a person to hell in this judgment. Do you know the answer to that? All their life will be evaluated. How many wrong answers can they get? I remember a bunch of years ago when I was a student at Auburn University studying to be an engineer, and I was taking a calculus class, and and the first day of the class the professor said, "Uh, I'm going to give you four tests in this class and each exam will have just five questions. So 20 questions, that's all I'll ask you. If you miss one, you get a B. You miss three, you get a C. You miss five, you fail. And I can remember every time we would take a test, I would sweat over those, those questions. I was so nervous that I might miss one of those class questions. I did miss a number I won't share with you of those questions. But what's the number with the Lord? Well, the answer found in many places in, in Scripture, Matthew 5:48, though is clearest: "Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Now, that may sound like a, a tough grading curve. Uh, and I have more to say about that in a moment, both good and bad, but that's, that's the standard. Let's continue to read verse 14. It says, "Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Three times here it says the lake of fire. Uh, The lake of fire is the eternal hell spoken of throughout Scripture. Uh, Jesus called it the unquenchable fire in Mark chapter 9. He called it the eternal fire in Matthew 25. He called it a furnace in Matthew 13, a place of torment in Luke 16 a place of darkness with weeping and the gnashing of teeth in Matthew chapter 8. He called it a place that brings destruction to the body and the soul in Matthew chapter 10. The theology of hell in the Bible is well developed. Uh, There is no question, no honest dispute concerning the reality of an eternal hell as a place of anguish and punishment, and this lake of fire we read of here refers to that. So what we see here is this great white throne judgment where all evil and all wickedness ends, where all evil forces are thrown into the lake of fire and every person who is not a follower of God is in the lake of fire. This becomes the last condition of every person separated from God. We will never hear from them again. In the pages of Scripture, or in the days of time for all eternity, this is their end. I want that finality just to sink in for a moment. There will be no second chances, ever. There will be no reevaluation, ever. There will be no reconsideration. There will be no appeal, no clemency, no parole, I think the worst thing about hell has to be its hopelessness. No one will ever complete their sentence in hell. And if that's not hard for you to hear, then you don't understand what I'm saying. This is the great white throne judgment and it is the last we hear of every person separated from God. Now, I know that 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 raises some questions. And so what I've sought to do in my study time this week is just to think through all the questions that you might have, uh, having read through that passage of scripture, understood a little bit about this. And I want to try to answer from the Bible these four or five questions. So here's the first one. Is hellfire only a symbol Uh, You might say, Pastor, you've mentioned a number of times as we've gone through the book of Revelation that much of what we read is symbolic. We're reading about symbols of realities that are beyond description. And could it be that hellfire here is just a symbol of something? Well, I think that's a very good question. Let me give you a, a, a couple of replies. First of all, The book of Revelation is not the only place in the Bible we see hell described as fire. We've already seen those number of times that Jesus referred to it. We could also give a similar list from the apostle Paul and from Peter and from others. The idea that hell is a fire and a literal fire is not just something we see in this highly symbolic book, the book of Revelation, but it is something we see in the more literal books of the gospels and the epistles. The preponderance of the evidence is that this is not a symbol. This is a real fiery, hot destruction and torment for all eternity. And it would be hard to come to any other conclusion if you look at the whole counsel of God's Word, this is real. But there's another thing to see here, I think, with respect to it being a symbol. Symbols always point to a greater reality, never a lesser reality. Let me just explain how the language works. And and you know this intuitively. The reason you use a symbol is to describe something that is beyond words. And so you use the only words you can think of to describe something that is far beyond what we have words to describe. So if I were to say that my wife is like a treasure chest of gold to me, I don't really mean that my wife, some gold, let me think about it and I'll let you know which one I want. (laughs) What I mean is, I can't explain to you how valuable my wife is to me. The only way I know to to say it is she's like a treasure chest of gold. And I don't mean by that that she is less than a treasure chest of gold. I mean that she is so far beyond what I have words to describe that that's all I can compare her to. And so when the Bible says that this place of eternal damnation... When the Bible says that this place of of, of eternal uh, torment is like a lake of fire, if that is a symbol, it doesn't mean that it is somehow less than a lake of fire. If it is a symbol, it means somehow it is more than a lake of fire. It means that it's something so awful that words were not available to describe it, and all that... John could do was to say, lake of fire, that's a symbol, but it's much worse than that. And so when people suggest that it could be a symbol, they do so in the hopes that it's something less. I don't believe it's a symbol, but if it is, it's a symbol of something worse. So is hellfire only a symbol? No. Second question, how can a loving God send someone to hell? That's a good question. How could God, if he is a loving God, send someone to hell? Well, the the key word here is the word send, right? Send somebody to hell. When we use the word send, we mean something by that. If I say I send a letter to somebody, if I say I send a gift to somebody, I send flowers to somebody, who has done the action? I've done the action. And I've done all of the action. If I send the letter, what does the letter do? The letter doesn't do anything. I sent the letter, I did the action. If I send a gift, the gift didn't do any work. I sent the gift. And so to send means that the sender has done all of the action. So to ask how could God send someone to hell misunderstands the whole the whole situation. God doesn't send people to hell. This is not a decision that's made in the halls of heaven. This is a decision that's made in the hearts of man. Let me explain how it's different. First of all, the man who goes to hell has chosen to sin. James 4, 17, it is a sin to know what is good, yet not do it. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The man who goes to hell has chosen to sin. The man who goes to hell has chosen not to believe. We all know John three sixteen, but do you know John three eighteen? It says if anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And so the one who is in hell has chosen not to believe. And the man who goes to hell has chosen to deny Christ in his work through the Holy Spirit. Listen, church, God does not want any person to go to hell. Second like Peter 3:9, the Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand, delay, but is patient with you. Do you know how patient God is with people? He is patient with us. Why? The Bible says, because He does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Further, the Bible says that hell was not created for mankind anyway. According to Matthew 25, 41, hell was created for the devil and his angels. And there's no greater tragedy to the Lord than a man goes to hell. And as terrible as the thought is to us, it is more terrible in the heart of God that when he has created in his own image, Go to hell. As I said, the determination is not made in the halls of heaven, but in the hearts of man. God does not send anyone to hell. The next question how did Jesus think and feel about hell? Uh, Well, if we're not careful, uh, somebody might come to the conclusion that Jesus is uh, glad that people go to hell, that some people go to hell. But it's just not the case in scripture. Uh, I'll read to you a couple of passages. Luke chapter 13, Jesus comes to the city of Jerusalem and, and they're lost and they, and they're refusing to embrace the message. And it says this, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Christ was heartbroken that they were going to hell. I think of Jesus in the garden before the crucifixion, Matthew chapter 26. First he says, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. There was something that was so grieving Jesus that it almost killed him. What was it? I don't think it was the pain of the cross. I think it was the weight of our sin and that our sin would send a person to hell. And so he says, I choose to take this cup. I choose this. But it, it broke his heart because hell was so terrible. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, it says that, that Jesus, who was God, did not consider his opportunity, his privilege as God, as an opportunity to bless himself, but he saw it as a way to bless us And he came, as the Bible says, as a man and humbled himself by becoming obedient, uh, even obedient to the point of death on the cross. Jesus, what did Jesus think about hell? Jesus did all he could to keep us from hell. Uh, I think there are two problems that you often see when people preach on hell. Uh, Some people preach like they don't believe anyone is going there. And that's not faithful to Scripture. But others preach like they are glad that people are going there, and that does not reflect the mind of Christ. Question number four, does the punishment fit the crime? You know, some people would suggest that hell, as described in Scripture, is, is so great a punishment for sin that it just doesn't fit our everyday sin. People could just have everyday sin and they could end up in hell for all eternity in the torment of hell? Well, when somebody says that, they demonstrate that they don't understand two things. One is the seriousness of sin and the other is the the holiness of God. Let me talk about those two things. First of all, the seriousness of sin, the nature of sin. We tend to see sin only in the context of how it affects us and the people around us. And so we justify our sin. We think if I exceed the speed limit when I drive, that's not a serious sin because 99% of the time it has no adverse consequences. So it's, it's no big deal. Didn't hurt me, didn't hurt anybody else. Somebody says something that is untrue, And we think that's no big deal because ordinarily there aren't any serious consequences. Even if my sin does hurt someone, it doesn't generally hurt them badly, I think. And anyway, people have sinned and hurt me. What's the big deal? But that understanding of sin does not reflect the biblical reality of sin. You see, our holy and righteous and good God, the creator of the universe, has given us clear instructions in his his word. So to violate these instructions is a deliberate rebellion against the goodness and the wisdom of God. See, don't, don't see your sin as whether or not it Don't judge it based on whether or not it hurts you. You think it hurts you or the people around you. See your sin as a deliberate rebellion against God. Every sin is an insurrection against the rule of God in this world. Every sin is an in-your-face denial before the Lord of 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 his reign and his authority. So when someone says the punishment doesn't fit the crime, they really don't understand uh, the nature. You have sinned against God. Now the other part of this is is the holiness of God. So when someone says the punishment doesn't fit the crime, they they misunderstand how terrible sin is. Sin is terrible. It's an insurrection against God's authority. But they also don't understand the holiness of God. You know, my sin may not seem so bad to me because I compare my sin with other people's sin. And while I certainly am guilty of sin, I can usually think of somebody I think has sinned worse than me, can't you? And so we let ourselves off the hook and we think our sin is no big deal. At least my sin is not bad enough to deserve eternal torment because I can think of lots of people who sin worse than I do. But we should not evaluate our sinfulness compared to other people. We should evaluate our sinfulness compared to God and His holiness. The Bible says, and we've seen it here in the book of Revelation, that the preeminent characteristic of God is that He's holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when I compare my sin not with the sinfulness of people I know, but when I compare my sin against the holiness of God, Then everything changes. The punishment, listen, church, the punishment is determined. The punishment your sin, my sin, deserves, is determined by the greatness and the honor and the purity and the holiness of the one we've sinned against. Let me explain it this way If I have some moles in my backyard, you know what I mean, tearing up my lawn and I go out with a gun and I shoot one, am I gonna get in trouble? No, my neighbors probably throw me a party, right? One less mole. But if my neighbor's puppy dog barks too loudly and I shoot it, that'd be another story, right? I'd probably be arrested found guilty of uh, uh, some minor felony, have to pay a fine, I don't know, maybe spend some time in jail. But what if I go out and I premeditate, I plan to go and shoot an innocent person, and I kill a person, what's going to happen? Well, now I'm going to spend a lifetime in prison, or I'll be executed for murder. Now, three, in all three cases, a life was destroyed. But why are there three different consequences? Well, because the consequence has something to do with the value of the life, right? And so the consequences of shooting a person much, much greater than shooting a puppy dog which is much, much greater than shooting a mole in your backyard because the consequences are determined by the honor and the value of the one sinned against. Listen, God, our holy God, has the greatest possible honor and glory. And so to sin against the holy God carries the greatest possible Punishment and penalty for sin. Let me answer question number five why is hell eternal? I'll admit that this is the hardest part for me to understand that hell, that this judgment, that this punishment would be eternal. Uh, I shared with you earlier, and I just want to remind you of this that this lake of fire, this judgment that we read of here is is final. It's the last word we'll hear. There are no second chances, no reevaluation, no appeal, no clemency, no parole, no hope. And no one will ever complete their sentence. You know, at least in the movies in prison, one of the common questions one prisoner will ask another que- another prisoner is how much time do you have left? And in hell, the answer will always be all of it. No one will ever complete a sentence. And so people make this argument against an eternal hell, and I've heard people make this argument. Uh, It it begins by talking of sin, and they say that, you know, I know I've committed sin, pastor, but my sin is limited. I could have committed worse sin, right? And you could have. And while I've committed sin for a long time, I've not committed sin forever. I've just committed sin at the most for as many years as I've lived. So me, I'm 54, I think. Um, At some point you get too old to do the math. but um, So I've sinned, but I could have sinned worse. And I've sinned for a long time, but it's 54 years. I mean, that's as long as I've sinned. So somebody concludes, will conclude by saying that your duration in hell must somehow be uh, commensurate with the amount and the severity of your sin. They would say it is unfair to assign eternal punishment for limited and finite sin. Well, how do we answer that? They'll say it's not fair send somebody to hell forever when their sin was limited and it was, and it was short. Well the easy thing to say is, well, God's not ever promised to be fair. And that's true. Uh, but that does really settle the question and it doesn't satisfy the inquirer. So let me see if I can give you a better answer. Two answers. Number one, crime and punishment do not require time equivalence. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The The length of time that you sin has nothing to do with the length of time of your punishment. Uh, That your punishment can't last longer than your sin, that's just a non sequitur. One doesn't logically follow the other. If a person goes on a 10-minute shooting spree and kills a dozen people and then they are sentenced to 12 consecutive life sentences... Nobody says, that's not fair. They only sinned for 10 minutes. No, it doesn't matter that you only sin for 10 minutes. The seriousness of your sin requires a much longer punishment. But there's a better answer, I think, to the, to the question. The punishment in hell is unrelenting because the sin is unrelenting. If your picture of hell is a picture of repentant sinners calling out to God for salvation and God refusing because they're in hell. I think you have an incorrect picture. No, when, when a person goes to hell, their sin just continues. Their sin, their rebellion against God doesn't end there. It continues there. We see proof of that in a number of places in the Bible, but If you remember back to Revelation chapter 9 a few weeks ago, I'll read to you some verses we read then. Uh, There was a great judgment upon the earth. God brought great wrath, poured out great wrath upon the earth. And then here's what the Bible says. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot hear, see, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Their sin just continued. And for those people in hell, their sin will continue. I'll read to you just, uh, just quickly what, uh, what I read actually Several weeks ago when I was studying Revelation chapter 9, a quote from a preacher that you may or may not know, Adrian Rogers, I like to read what he has to say about scripture verses. But he said this, you would think that judgment would cause people to repent, but it doesn't. Do you think that people in hell are begging to be saved? I want to tell you something. And don't misunderstand what I'm telling you. I believe if a man in hell asked Jesus to save him, then Jesus would save him. I believe if one of those lost souls in the pit right now were to say, God, I repent of my sins and I trust Christ as my savior, I believe God would take him out of hell and bring him to heaven. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't believe anybody. I don't believe anybody will ever be saved out of hell. But the Bible does say, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if a man in hell said, God, I repent of my sins, save me, God would save him. That's what I believe but he'll never do it. Do you know what they do in hell? They don't beg for mercy, friends. They curse God. The Bible says in hell there will be weeping, yes, wailing, yes, but also the gnashing of teeth, gnashing of teeth at God. They hate God like the demons themselves. Their character is so frozen, so wicked that in spite of that judgment, they would never repent. Why does hell continue forever? Because sin continues forever very quickly the last the last question if hell is so bad why doesn't God do something about it in a lot of ways I could have asked this question I could have said why is there a hell or why didn't God make a world where nobody needed to go to hell Uh, make no mistake hell was God's idea he thought it up he created it and he did so on purpose and with a purpose Hell is a witness, first of all, to the righteousness of the character of God. If God is just and righteous, then there has to be a way to punish sin. And God created hell. Hell is a witness to man's responsibility. God does not send people to hell as if they were some robot, helpless victim. Man chooses in his own heart. Hell is a witness to the awfulness of sin. If we could see sin like God sees it, we would understand the need for the reality of hell. But back to the question. If hell is so bad, why didn't God do something about it? He did. He sent Jesus to the cross. And Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that if we trust in him, if we turn from our sins and make him the Lord of our lives, The Bible says all of our sins will be forgiven. Listen, God didn't say, clean up your act or you're going to hell. God said, I, I will send my son and he will pay the penalty for your sins. But you must embrace what he's done. You must trust him. You know, the Bible teaches and the book of Revelation confirms that everybody lives forever somewhere. Everybody lives forever somewhere. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed, I want to pray. Father in heaven, you tell us everybody lives forever somewhere. The book of Revelation has reminded us that everybody won't live together and that eternal punishment and damnation is real. I pray today that the weight of that reality will lead us to you, to accept you as our Lord and Savior, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And for those of us who are children of God, that it will lead us to praise, worship you, and thank you for the forgiveness that is ours. Father, lead us in this time of decision. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond.